This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you in part by PK Lures. PK Lures makes some of the best fishing lures on the market. Their high quality lures shine when others don't by helping you put fish in the boat or on the ice consistently. I've been using PK Lures successfully now for over 12 years and I can personally attest to their effectiveness. When I'm ice fishing, you can bet that I have a PK Red Dot Glow Jigging Spoon or a Fire Tiger Glow Jigging Spoon tied on one of my rods. They've helped me catch many high quality fish of various species from season to season. My favorite hard water lures are the PK Spoon, PK Flutterfish, and Tungsten Predator. For open water, I love the PK Spinajig, PK Dakota Disc, and the next generation PK Ridgeline Crankbait. This past season, I was introduced to the PK Wobbler, which is also a really effective fish-catching machine from the boat. They also have some incredible videos on their website, pklure.com, to show you exactly how to use these wonderful lures. So if you want to have a little more success out on the water and you want to help support a great company, please go to pklure.com. Again, that's pklure.com, and get your PK lures today. And please tell them that the Radcast Outdoors podcast sent you. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello and welcome, Radio Land, back to Radcast Outdoors. We're back inside from the great outdoors to sit down and have another discussion about hunting and fishing and everything in between. I'm here with myself and <laughs> Patrick Edwards. How's everybody doing? And we've got uh, another guest in the studio today. I guess I'll go ahead and introduce him. It's uh, it's Mr. Merrill. Uh, some of you do know or have heard of him on the podcast. He's uh, He's been uh, brought up once or twice. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> Yeah, we've, well, I've heard stories about you on this podcast a couple of times, so this is David's dad. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I go by Dave, so, and he goes by David. Let's get that straight. All right. Well, I'm going to have a Dave and David in here. Well, I'll try to keep it straight. As best I can. So I've heard stories that uh, you took David out when he was pretty darn small to go go fishing and recreating in the outdoors. So about about what age did you start taking him out? You know, I, I remember one time I took him out. It was, uh, I had a little Chevy Love pickup that was four-wheel drive, but it was worthless to go hardly anywhere. But it was it was a pickup I had. And uh, I took him, uh, I went fly fishing up a little stream with a, a friend of mine. And so we, he was had the car seat in the middle of the truck. And, and it was bench seat, so we strapped him in there. And, and it was tight, but we drove up. And he fell asleep on the way up because it, you know, it was a bumpy road, and he fell asleep. And so we got there and we stopped on a little dirt road and a little five foot wide stream running there. And we got out and went fishing and was catching a few little, you know, brookies and whatever and fly fishing. And so he went fishing with us. He he woke up sometime during the time we were fishing and <laughs> was not happy that he was stuck in his car seat, but. He was about 18 months old, you know, Drake's age, so. And of course, you don't remember any of that, I'm sure. I do not remember being abused as a child <laughs> by forced, forced fly fishing endeavors that I did not want to go on. But that sets a precedence for the next, you know, 18 years of David's fishing career. I, I'm excited to hear your kids' stories when they get older about dad taking them huntings, because I'm sure there's going to be a few of those. There's a picture of my oldest one asleep in the saddle on a horse elk hunting. 
he's just doubled over holding on to the horn. So I finally pulled him off and laid him on the ground on my jacket. But yeah, there's going to be some dad forced me to go elk hunting. Well, I, I have a little bit of a theory, and that is that it becomes too easy. David caught fish when he was two and a half, three, four, five. You know, he caught, there, there's pictures of him with holding fish, you know, that a lot of people would be very jealous of at, as an adult. And, you know, it just was... Well, we went fishing and he caught a fish and, you know, it was, it was celebrated and we had a good time, but fishing was no, there was no challenge to it. There was no awe, mystery or, but there was, you know, we went hunting, but we really, we shot a few deer, but we really, that was not a passion of mine. I, you know, I stream over there, we're going fishing, you know, we're, we're driving to hunting. Oh, I, let's stop and go fishing. You know, that, that, mm-hmm. that's, so this guy's familiar. notorious for when we go archery elk hunting, he almost always has a couple flies, a little bit of leader rolled up in a Ziploc bag when we're backpacking <laughs> in and midday, the rest of us are taking a nap so that we can, you know, hunt hard again that evening. This guy's over there. He's cut a willow and mm-hmm. he's fishing in, in a stream that's a foot wide. Yeah, but nobody's fished that stream in the last 90 days. And, and those <laughs> fish are, are really hungry. And, you know, it doesn't take much to catch them. That's true. I'm the same way. If I go by a body of water, the first thing I think of is what's in there. And then the next thought is how can I fish it? So I get it. I totally get it. But, you know, dad was touching on the premise of... And I remember in the oil field talking to a kid who grew up in Star Valley and his dad was an outfitter and, you know, he went up on the thoroughfare and killed like a 390 bull in high school. He'd never had any desire to go elk hunting after that. You know, the premise of your passion doesn't usually transcend to your kids. Your kids kind of go, I'm going to, I've done that. You know, before I graduated high school, I had several dozen steelhead on the wall done. That was check that box. Let's go do something different. You know, and, and to put a little, a little perspective around several dozen steelhead, average time to catch a steelhead in Oregon where we lived was f- about 40 hours. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to catch a steelhead, it's, it's, you know, you go out fishing for eight hours and typically most people didn't catch a steelhead. Now, I wasn't as good as some of the guys that were there fishing steelhead, but I was, you know, we could go out and every other trip we'd, we'd, we'd at least play a steelhead and a lot of times we'd land one. Sometimes we'd come home with two in the same trip. Uh, there was a lot of times that we would pick mm-hmm. up two steelhead coming home and it's like, well, we, you know, we didn't get, you know, we had three of us in the boat and we didn't get the third one, but you know, that was most of the boats we passed. How many steelhead? Did you catch any steelhead? Oh no, mm-hmm. we didn't, we didn't have even have a bite, you know, and they had floated the same stretch of river we had. I mean, it was, you know, I, I moved to Oregon in the, in the late eighties and shortly thereafter, ran, you know, wandered around at work and where do I go fishing? And, you know, Oregon was totally different than, than Utah where I'd grown up and spent time. And so it was, I got, well, you go talk to Don and Don was in the Northwest steelheaders and that was Northwest steelheaders was, you know, they met once a month and bunch of old guys told them fish stories and but they were telling you you know along with the fish stories you got here's here's a uh, how you back, back bounce for 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 salmon in the river and there were guys that were you know that's all they wanted to do was fish for the chinook salmon coming up the river and we fished mostly the south Santa am ended up buying a a, a Santa am drifter a drift boat which was a little bit of a an all fiberglass drift boat but it was pretty light and so it was it was it was fun to row in fact i still have that boat it's in alaska and finally put a new floor in it this this last year and so that was a fiberglass project i worked on so Mm -hmm. but that's the the inkling of my one 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 night a a month every month i went and hung out with my dad at the northwest steelheaders club i was the only kid there with all these 70 year old or 50 year old (laughs) that's how you learn though man Those, those are the guys that are the bearers of lots and lots of knowledge that they pass along well half the reason why i took him 
was that the the old guys wanted to show this this young kid how to go fishing. Absolutely. So, so we got invited on a few drift boat trips that normally people didn't go. I mean, there was a there was a few guys there that they caught fish every trip they took the boat down the river. I mean, it's the old you know twenty percent of the fishermen catch eighty percent of the fish. And one guy I would go down the river with he he had been down that river so many times he knew every hole and he knew I mean he knew where the fish were in every hole at every flow level of the river. So when the flow level changed, the fish moved around a little bit. You know, well, you know, today the flow was pretty high. He would only go when the if the river level was above it. I don't remember the, the gauge numbers anymore. But when when the river level got high, he wouldn't go fishing because it it was the fish were on the bottom of the river and it was very very difficult to get your gear down there. But we would go down the river and he'd go, oh, we're gonna get a fish about right here, and then oh, you know, bam, there goes the rod. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what is that? A fish on remote control? You know, mm-hmm. but it was just you know local knowledge of here's the way the river looks and here's where all the fish are one thing i remember learning specifically with salmon and this is something our listeners can can glean is you can go to the store and you can buy roe and you can go fishing with it and occasionally catch a salmon but that fresh roe and specifically one guy that I started steelhead fishing with that was just a guru. I mean, he fished 50 weekends a year for steelhead. And there were some days we put more more steelhead than most people would believe in a boat. But, I mean, his eggs, his row, and his, his rule in the boat was, you know, you take your fish, but the row stays with the boat. And you, you glove up to touch that row. He... He did all that, and I think the olfactory glands, those sense glands, those salmonoid, he, his bait outperformed a lot of other baits. Yeah, if you do the research on those fish, they have extremely good senses of smell. And, I mean, it's, it's incredible how much better a trout, for instance, can smell than a walleye. I mean, there's no comparison at all. I mean, it's off the charts how well they can smell. So you're right. I mean, that family of fish, smell is a huge deal. So if you foul something up, you're probably not going to catch them. And I remember just, you know, it's been a couple seasons ago, but we were fishing the Kenai in Alaska. They'd opened bait and we had a pretty decent run of kings. And I took a bunch of row from sockeye prepared it the same way made sure we only used gloves to touch it and we slayed those fish i mean we were outperforming 50 other boats sitting on the river around us and it's that good fresh bait instead of that six month old store-bought stuff how do you prepare that bait typically because i know everybody's got a different recipe i've seen guys that use salt sugar borax all kinds of different things to kind of make them harden up and cure up to where they'll sit on a hook for one but what do you typically do with eggs you know, when you go to get the fish, we're catching sockeye that day, and then I'm buying the store-bought row cure, either one, okay. pro cure or yep. the other cure, following the instructions, putting it right on a rack outside. But, I mean, with gloves laid on the rack, sprinkle it, air dry it a little bit on both sides for about 12 hours. You know, sprinkle it, because a lot of people just sprinkle it, throw it in a bag. You want it to get somewhat firm, so when you yep. go to put it on the a, on the hook, it, it stays there. But you want to have quite a bit of milk and juice and, and scent coming off that. You don't want it so dry like jerky mm-hmm. that when you put it on there, yeah, it's on there. But no, you, I mean, you got to think about that row naturally in the river, floating down the river, you know, out of maybe a salmon that a bear ate or, and I'm, I'm not 100% certain why, salmon even eat egg that that does, that seems a little bit uh as far as a species that doesn't help this the species procreate that you know i've always wondered the same thing like you see the guys up in the great lakes when the browns come in to spawn they use spawn sacks to catch them and i'm always like why would they do that it just doesn't we'll, we'll have to do some research on that and figure that out because i'm not I'm, really sure i bet you it's competition between something the genes right? something right you you want your yeah. your offspring to perpetuate and not your your (laughs) your neighbors so but again we you know back to those king salmon and the way i prepare that row is you know i let it air dry just a little bit till it gets a little thick skin on the outside yep 
and then throw it in the bag in the fridge and let it sit there for 24 and then go use the stuff. You don't want to let it sit there for two, three weeks. If it's going to be that long, put it in a mason jar, put it in the freezer and that then you'll have to thaw it out the day before you want to use it. But that's typically when I went fishing with that guy in Oregon, we had, you know, one or two bags of yesterday's that had been unthawed and then we'd grab one or two jars out of the freezer and sometimes we'd go through four to six mason jars i mean when when that row is bad you throw it off and put new on and the biggest thing i'll say is with steelhead you want about a dime-sized gob of of eggs and uh, what i found with the sockeye eggs they're a really big egg and they're kind of loose skinned they don't they wouldn't if you tried to cut it in that size it just wouldn't work but for those king salmon you want about a at least a quarter size if not a 50 cent piece of eggs so you know the interesting there's an interesting story there about david and that that king salmon trip because we were there fishing and i wasn't on the boat at the time but he had he got had his king had it in the net <laughs> and the net was flipped over so the the lip was down and stood <laughs> up and and the king salmon decided to flip in the net and flopped out of the net and had de-hooked itself on the net, which is normal when your fish gets in the net. Oh, Half yeah. the time they, they pull the hook out. That's the closest I've seen him. He was still crying about that when he came back <laughs> hours later. I would have been crying too. I'd have been in the fetal position on the floor. We, 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 we'll discuss later who, who had the handle of the net and who had the handle of the rod. But I, I will say it was a, a husband and wife team and that almost caused a divorce. So. Yeah, I, th- I think we have talked about that one. <laughs> There are tears shed over fish like that every year on the Kenai. You know, the, 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 so we were fishing for reds, and we were fishing down on, on one of the cut banks we like to fish at. For whatever reason, we, we hooked a, a halfway decent king, and we could tell it was a king, and the king just hooked a king like that, and he just decided The, the fish to act completely different. You hook a sockeye, oh. and it flops on the top of the water and, you know, yeah. basically stays within six feet of shore. You hook one of those bigger fish, it goes to the middle of the river and goes sits in the bottom, and you can't move it. A king owns you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you're there and, and and you're fishing with, you know, I mean, we're running heavy leader. We're running like 20 pound leader and, 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 and 40 pound mainline, you know, at, you can't to, to land all those Kings on the, from the shores is, is that's a, that's a pretty tough accomplishment. To, yeah, well, to, with a 20 pound leader, you might as well be saying a prayer because <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. I hooked a decent sized King when I was fishing the Kenai and I had 20 pound leader on and guess what? I, he, he broke me off. I yeah. mean, I, part of it was I couldn't let him go any further than he was going. Cause he was going to get me all fouled up and everybody else and i was like well put the brakes on and yeah there you go snap we were saying we said you know what we gotta hop in the boat the next time that happens and see if we can land that fish so fishing in the same hot there and pretty soon i i hook into to a king salmon and i you know i know it's a king and next thing i know david's got it run up and grabbed the boat he's come down to the boat it, and was, it was it was pure chaos and pandemonium there for about five <laughs> minutes well so i'm standing here you know i mean i'm standing in about six to eight inches in water and you know, fighting the fish and all of a sudden the boat comes down the river by me. I'm trying to get in and all of a sudden I, I get this claw that just grabs hold of the back of my waders and pulls me in and I'm upside down on the bottom of the boat. <laughs> really? Still reeling. Rod tips up, still reeling because I just reached out as I passed him by and the boat grabbed his jacket and just said, we're going to get this fish. <laughs> You know, and I did I did have the presence of mind to keep the rod tip up, you know, and keep a little pressure on it. A little bit like a turtle on its back in the bottom <laughs> of the boat down there. Kind of wondering what happened. But anyway, then, then you know, this was first time we'd had a, a, a king on in a boat. So we had to learn how, how to drive the boat. Fish circled the boat about three times before we figured out, no, you kind of got to steer the boat. Keep, you keep the boat in gear. You know, and you don't, you're not trying to go upstream. You're just trying to maintain position or slowly float down. And then you keep the fish downstream of you. So he's got to fight the current as well. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if you try and just keep up with him, now you're in a lake instead of a river, and he just keeps trying to go underneath the boat for safety. And and so yeah, that was that was kind of fun to learn that lesson. How to? But you know, this this goes back to one of the things I've said about a long time, and that is, how do you learn how to catch big fish? And that is, you lose big fish. And, oh yeah. And and that's there's 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 so many things that you have to learn about about how to catch a big fish. And it, you know, it's like sockeye salmon. When the fish comes out of the water, you have to bow to the fish. Basically, by that I mean you have to take the the pressure off your rod and, and you know bow your rod to the fish because when the fish goes back in the water, he's suddenly got a whole bunch of extra energy that's going to go somewhere. The fish is going to dart some direction when he goes back in the water, and you don't know which that direction is. A lot of times, if you don't bow to the fish and it's a big fish and he comes out, he's going to break your line off because so all of a sudden you got a huge extra pull. But if you give him a little bit of slack in that moment that he enters the water, you have a good chance to to, to stay attached and you know and maybe land that fish i've had that happen with about a 30 inch brown i hooked him and he went and he made a huge jump and i wasn't ready i mean i wasn't ready for a 30 inch brown to hit my line for one thing and i had six pound test so i didn't have a whole lot to to give him any any of the business you know what i mean so he came out of the water and just like you said i mean he hit that thing running and snapped my line nothing flat part of it was it wasn't really fishing stuff that was real great for landing a 30 inch brown but that's the way it goes the alaska state record on the kenai for king salmon is a is a bank catch les anderson i think caught and it's uh when they finally waited it's in the 90s but yeah you know they said it lost a pound or more while he was driving around so that's a big fish that thing looked like a prehistoric monster well they all do (laughs) (laughs) you get you get anything over 20 40 pound fish that's a it's like fighting goliath out there man that's a humongous fish i can't even imagine i mean just trying to pick a fish like that up would be a struggle let alone trying to fight one i mean when you go to grab you know we're used to those bigger fish you grab around the base of the tail right Mm mm-hmm and when it's, you know, like trying to grab around your calf, you know, you can't get your hand all the way around it. And you go to grip and it's just like, uh, um, I need two hands to hold. I could remember we did a lot of uh, volunteer spawning for the, the steelhead program there in Oregon. And I was a young teenager, 12 to 14. And I'd get in the in the catch pens when it was time to help do that spawning. You know, we did that volunteer. And there's a couple of those steelhead in the those bigger bucks in the 30-inch category 30 to 40 inch that i couldn't lift out of the pond i mean they'd start going and you know and they're powerful i mean geez it's like grabbing something that's just full of electricity i mean they're so strong that was an uh, an amazing experience to just be part of that whole you know and it was a volunteer effort and we would go help the you know they would spawn steelhead about three or four times in in between december and end of december really and end of january there'd have to be three or four spawnings we go out and you know they would corral all the fish up and kind of kind of handle the fish and they'd sort a few of them and then they, they would the ones that were ripe you know you would spawn them and that was just to see that whole thing that was just magical you know i mean to, mm-hmm. to be part of that and see that many fish and i mean that's especially being from and they took all the eggs and they'd incubate them and then they they had all these different ponds of hatchlings that they'd feed them to fingerlings and then they turned them loose and those are the ones when they're adults you get to keep right yeah yeah so they would take, they had a system that would cut the adipose fin off, which is the yep. fin between the tail and the dorsal fin. They'd cut that off. And so you could tell that it was a hatchery fish versus a wild fish. And they mm-hmm. had a wild run they were trying to protect there, but they were supplementing that with hatchery fish. And that was a result of, they put uh, some dams in there. They said they had to do that. And they had, they also were, were transporting that they would catch all the sam all the steelhead that come up and the wild fish, they would basically 
truck the, around the dam. Truck around the dam, and and the spawners were taken out of the system, so they didn't mm. want them spawning. So I went to that dam on the Columbia, and they had that little system off to the side where the fish could kind of work their way through. I don't know. It was kind of interesting because you could actually go inside and you could see them through the glass migrating their way through. They had some kind of a channel or something that they Bonneville could, Dam. Has yeah, a, Bonneville Dam. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was kind of cool to watch that. But I know a lot of them now. You know whether they're netting them and trucking them around or whatever, but they have a lot of different efforts to the, do the, that. The big effort on the Bonneville, on that river system, was they're, they're, they're actually trucking the fingerlings on their out-migration is what they're uh, trying okay. to do. Because, so they don't get chewed up through the dam. Well, it's the, the increased nitrogen levels in the water causes issues with the fish. And then you, the other thing you have happen is, is that kind of stuns the, the, the fingerling or the, the smolts as they're out-migrating. Out and they are then very pr- vulnerable to predators, and you'll see huge, you know, swarms of gulls and and, mm-hmm. and stuff gathered there trying to, you know, catch a free meal. Well, there's a lot of predators too. I mean, that like I know the Columbia River is now known for some of the biggest walleye in the world. You know, there's there's guys that go up there every year now and catch a 20 pound walleye, which is crazy to me. Like I think about 10 pound walleye being big, and you got these guys catching them in the upper teens, you know, to 20 pounds. And I mean, what do you think they eat? I mean, they're going to eat whatever fits in their mouth. So, and if you get that big, a lot fits in your mouth if you're a walleye. So I'm sure those fish should be a little bit more vulnerable. But that's why there's no limit on walleye in that river either. They, no, want, they're, them, they they're, want them all caught. Tell me a little bit more about raising boys and taking them taking them out on these fishing trips and kind of give our audience just a few of the tips of what do you think makes a successful trip with kids. So with, with kids, I think it's always about it. They've got a shorter attention span. They can't. They're not going to tolerate trying to fish for steelhead for for eight hours and not catching a fish. That's taking kids steelhead is is fishing is is, is pretty um, risky. Or you're gonna you're gonna have to have some way to entertain them besides fishing. We've, we've talked about this a little bit, and it's it's akin to taking them trophy game hunting, right? And setting the expectation of well, we're going to go shoot a record buck or bull or whatever. Start smaller. Go rabbit hunting, right? Start smaller. Go. Go perch fishing. Bluegill fishing, yeah, anything like I mean, that. bass, something, a, a fish species that's a little more preclusive to being caught. Yeah, well, and closer uh, to the house, maybe. <laughs> something like that. But part of it is, is uh, one of the things that I that, that I did on, on a couple of those trips was there was a spot halfway down the river that we would stop, take, put the steelhead poles away. We would take out fly poles and we would fish for, for whatever was in, in a couple spots on the river where there was a place where we could fly fish and catch a few little fish and turn them loose. And so that was, okay, we're, we're soon to that spot. Or as a kid growing up, the other thing my parents did, you know, which, which I thought was you grow up and you, you, these things, you know, that are, that happen in your family that driving down the road, it was like, okay, can you see any deer? Can you see any deer? And, you know, my brother's amazingly at, at, at spotting critters, but you know, as kids, we're up on top of the camper, riding on top of the camper over the cab overhead, things you wouldn't do today, but, and, and watching for deer. And we would, you know, bang on one side of the roof to tell them there was, you know, we saw elk on, or deer on one side of the road or the other or whatever. It wasn't until I got to have kids of my own that I realized having your kids look for deer and elk was, was more to entertain the kids than it was to see the deer and elk. <laughs> <laughs> but so now I took David fishing. He was about uh, probably 10 and his brother was probably, you know, a couple of years younger than that. Fly fishing up, uh, one of the little streams. This was right after we moved to Oregon. Went to look at fly fishing on this little stream, and we were there fishing. And it was June, July, midsummer. David had his fly pole, and he was he was fishing there. And he stepped up to a, to a log right next to the river, and there was a uh, hornet's nest in the ground. And he stepped on the hornet's nest. Well, the hornet's nest flew up, and they got inside his cargo shorts and started to sting his legs. 
Ouch. Bald-faced hornets, by the way, too. Those are mean. And then... Um, Should have cured me for fishing the rest <laughs> of my life right then. <laughs> Boy, that would wake you up, that's for sure. <laughs> so, anyway, he was there going, something's biting. You know, and he's standing there. He, he's jumping up and down now on the ground, flapping his legs because something's biting him. Finally, we got him to run out of there, but then it was an interesting drive home there. I was worried about, okay, is he going to go into shock here? What am I going to do? You know, this mm-hmm. is, anyway, those, those things go through your mind about, uh, luckily, I did have some Benadryl with me, and I had, I said, here, take a couple Benadryl. So he kind of went to sleep, but it was, I'm kind of going, okay, you know, but that's, that's one of those, all of a sudden, you know, it was a, it was a fun trip, and then it was turned into, you know, a whole different situation. As a parent, you kind of, some concerns there, but it was. But I want to go back and touch on those steelhead trips where we, we would stop in about the biggest rapids on the whole float and put the put the steelhead gear away and pull out the you know the five weight fly rods and go catch we were catching smolts let's be honest <laughs> it was it was mostly smolts and it was all catch and release but i was able to you know instead of when when we were steelhead fishing it was a lot of back bouncing or or plugs or spinners and it was a very low catch rate when you put a small fly on in those rapids where those fingerlings are at we were catching, you know, a, a dozen fish in, in 15, 20 minutes of fishing. Now they were four to six inches, not 20 and 30 and maybe up to 40 inches. But I really look forward to getting to that spot of the river every time because, A, I get to get out of the boat and just go walk around, and, B, I actually get to catch a fish. There's times I've been musky fishing. Muskies are maddening, kind of like a steelhead. I mean, they're they're really hard to catch. And, you know, you'd be tiger musky fishing and get tired of that and stop for a few minutes to catch a few panfish. That's kind of a nice break. You know, it's like, oh, I still can catch a fish because you start to doubt yourself as a fisherman <laughs> when you go a long time without catching something. It's like, oh, man, I need a confidence boost here. Let's go find some bluegill or some perch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that, that goes back to when there was there's a skill to fishing and, and a lot of people, you know, it's, it's, it's not just, I put my bait on my hook and put my hook out there and I catch a fish. A lot of times on the, on the Russian river, when I go up there and fish, mm-hmm. it's, you know, elbow to elbow fishing. I'm not quite elbow. To, it's, it's pole to pole fishing. And if they, they're crowding you, you know, it gets tighter than that. But when you're standing in a line of a conga line of that, everybody's lined up there fishing and, and you're the only one that's catching fish. Pretty soon you have lots of friends and they're, they're, <laughs> they're trying to get It must be to- the spot or, or this is the best one is it's the color of the yarn he's using. We got to go get yellow yarn. <laughs> yeah. Those are the guys that are the first ones to grab a net to help you net your fish so that they can get you out of the way so that they can catch fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. And I, and I have used that tactic more than once Me on too. the river. <laughs> it's smart, right? I mean, it's it's like, well, you're doing really well. Let me help you net your fish. But there are some skills in fishing that transcend species locations. And it, I mean, it comes down to, I've noticed guys from the Pacific Northwest that go up fish the Kenai that have some steelhead background, they tend to do very well. And people who don't have that specific skill set of that type of you know when you're when you're drifting a corky through a hole and you've got to differentiate between a bounce on the bottom and a just a nibble and those those steelhead can have the ever softest just a they just mouth that egg right but mm-hmm. it, the cadence of the bounce of your weight along the bottom stops and as a fisherman i'm gonna set the hook here now sometimes it could be hung up on a stick or another piece of line but sometimes it could be a fish has come up and grabbed that corky and is paused and taking that skill and going red fishing it's the same thing yeah you don't have the corky on there but that hook is paused from its cadence floating downstream because it's in a fish's mouth and you need to set that hook and the other thing i've found is i use a lot of gamagatsu hooks on that river you know nice sharp quality steel hooks Mm -hmm. 
when I take newbies up there, you know, we buy the, uh, the, the buck a dozen cheap, cheaper hooks because they're going through hooks. I mean, it's just, you're either getting hung up on the bottom or you're breaking hooks off fish. And yeah. so, but on my pole, you'll notice that I've got gamagatsus and I keep them sharp. But a couple times, you know, I'll just, when it's slower fishing, and I, even with my gamagatsu, you run that across the rocks enough, you've either got a barb on the end of your hook or you've just doled the point. And I'll, I'll tickle two fish, you know, I'll, I'll have set the hook in the mouth, can feel the fish, and then it comes off after about three head shakes. You're like, what's going on here? Pull your hook up and try and stick it in your nail, and it mm-hmm. won't stick in. You sharpen that hook or put a new hook on it, and the very next cast, you're landing Ooh. another fish. Yep. The other thing we learned when I was really young, Dad took me to Alaska. We went to Prince of Wales Island. I never did, uh, he's done a couple good news floats, and that's a, you know, a 10-day float trip with a kid. I, I think that wouldn't be a little maddening. <laughs> <laughs> for for both parties involved but <laughs> but the prince of wales trips that we did was a you know a cabin on a salmon stream with with humpies and we learned there you know i would tie flies all spring to get ready to go on that trip and we'd go with sometimes 2000 flies of different varieties and types and lengths i don't know if we ever got quite to 2000 but we had it we would have a, a very full fly box because you didn't know what they were going to hit and, and they couldn't buy any flies really, but it was, you know, so we had a lot of per- purple egg had sudden leeches and then, you know, some other stuff. But there was a whole activity of we spent six months getting ready for tying flies and, you know. I had a fly bench in my room and mm-hmm. I'd come home from high school and I'd tie flies getting ready to go. Yep. Just a couple, you know, maybe a dozen a night. But what I remember is in Alaska, on the third fish, you would break that fly off and lose it. Almost you know, almost every time. So on the after you caught your second fish, you clip the knot, retie, retie that fly. Yeah. You, you're not going to the store and getting any more flies. And if they're hitting that specific fly for whatever reason, you know, I remember we caught a few uh, flounder on a shrimp pattern right out at Tidewater. I threw it out there and kind of let it dead drift on the bottom. And after a week of eating, you know, humpies, <laughs> I was really excited to have a flounder, some, some oh, yeah. different flavor of fish. And they're good, too. That trip, but that whole trip encompassing, we went to one cabin. We stayed there. We day hiked from there fishing. You know, when I was tired or wet or cold, we could go get in the cabin and get warmed up and dried out. Mm. On a progressive float trip through Alaska, you get wet and cold. You're wet and cold for a day or two until you dry your gear out. Yeah. Until you warm up, which sometimes it takes a while. That's a, th- those are really two very different experiences, but they're both a float trip, but like on the good news where it's, you know, you've got 60 river miles to go in 10 days. It's more than you can travel in one day. I mean, so we, it, it was a leisurely place. I mean, we'd get up every morning, we'd cook breakfast, we'd tear tents down, we'd pack everything up, and then we'd load in the rafts, and we had two rafts. And, yeah, I mean, on that float trip in 10 days, we saw... A, 10 people besides the people that come with us you know i mean there was mm-hmm. no i think we talked to two of them there were some we saw we didn't even talk to they just kind of were off in the distance a little bit so it was pretty much the group you went with but it was now the interesting thing about that trip was that, that there was really no trees around it was that far north but there was a lot of tall grass on you know it was tundra uh, but there was tall grass right next to the river but there was this 18 inch wide path up and down both sides of the river that was just beautiful you know it'd been pa- uh, the grass had been packed down there was an 18 inch wide path and you kind of went what 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 was that well that what was the grizzly bears were mm-hmm. are coming from you know a miles around and that they were feeding on the on the silvers that we were fishing we went in august and 
and the the reds had mostly gone up. A funny story there when we the one of the guys we went with, they were supposed to have one float plane that would take all of us at once. Well, that float plane was down, so it was down to two trips. And so you split the gear amongst two groups we sp- of people. We, yeah, you had the, to hop in the, two the, planes the, instead of one plane. We're, we're we're yeah, we're all there, and and everybody's oh, we gotta go. So two of us that weren't quite as okay, we're not going to jump up and down about it. We we stayed behind, and three guys were you know just raring to go. They hopped in the boat, took the gear, and left. And and as we turned around and walked back, we just started laughing because here sitting was the pile was the pile of fishing poles. All the fishing poles were back with us. <laughs> Whoops. The three eager beavers, like, yeah, we'll we'll take the first plane and and we'll get out there and we'll, we'll go. We'll volunteer to be first. They they didn't volunteer to first and set camp up and get the raft set up. No, they're they're gonna go fishing and they'll do all that stuff later. They were gonna blow the rafts up and everything. And so, but the funny part was, is okay. So here we're flying in and there's these red shoals on, on Good News Lake. And there's these red shoals. These red shoals are red salmon. I mean, there was literally thousands of them. You could see they colored the edge of the the lake red and the one guy who was just so competitive always had to catch a fish he was out there he had taken the spare 20 pound line of spool you know just and he had it tied something on there was out there trying to catch a fish it was comical (laughs) it's kind of like when you wake up from your nap elk hunting and you look over and here's a guy that's got a willow cut with six feet a liter (laughs) and trying to catch a fish that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> That's awesome. I have to catch a fish now in this body of water. What do I have? Well, I have what I have, so we're fishing. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that you guys touched on is obviously, you know, you got to get your kids out there and you got to go fishing. But one of the things I've noticed with my four kids is they're all very different. So I have one that she'll go fishing in any conditions, not catch a fish, be perfectly happy. She's a hardcore fisherwoman. And you've seen the pictures, David. She catches the big fish. (laughs) Yes. And then I have the next step. I have another daughter who she'll go and she'll weather a fair amount, but she's not going to sit through cold wind and do all that. She'll do it for a little bit but then she's done. Then I have the other two who, if they don't catch a fish within the first two minutes, they're running up and down the bank and doing something else. They're playing with rocks. They're trying to catch crawfish. They're digging holes in the dirt, you know, doing whatever. And it's, it's okay. You know, and it's, it's hard for me because I'm a hardcore fisherman. So I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I brought you here to fish and I have to constantly, I just ask my wife. I mean, she'll tell you, Patrick, you know, she, she's always telling me, Patrick, check yourself. It's okay. <laughs> you know, cause I'm like, man, I did all this work to set all this up, man. I set all this up and I want you to be here and I want you to experience this. But sometimes the kids just aren't into it as much as we are, but I really appreciate those trips with my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter because they'll just fish. And there was one day this last summer, it was right after I took you out, David, when we went out on Boyson and caught those nice, nice trout. Um, I took those two girls and took them to Bass Lake just to have a little daddy daughter time. And we went to a spot where I knew there were going to be some bluegill and some perch and we just caught the snot out of them. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I had offered for all four kids to come, but only those two wanted to come. And so when we got home and we had this mess of fish, you know, the other two were kind of jealous. You know, they're like, oh, well, I, I can't believe I, I, I would have go. gone you if, know, if, yeah. if you were going to catch fish. I thought exactly. you were going to sit in the wind and be <laughs> yeah. bored. And so those two girls, you know, they were like, well, we caught all the fish, you know, because we went, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of fun. But it's just, it's it's just interesting how every kid is different and every kid has a different threshold of you know, I'm going to power through this or I'm not going to power through this. And so each one's a little bit different. But I find it eerily reminiscent that, you know, my, my little brother fished a lot with dad and I, I mean, quite a bit. And both of us into high school, we fished heavily. You know, 
and my brother was in as big into fishing as I was and we caught lots of fish and he got lots of steelhead but today you know him and I just I mean we go fishing and we'll go on trips and we'll do certain stuff but that's not our go-to every weekend activity I mean my brother's into hunting about to the level of, of chaos that I am right <laughs> <laughs> and you know so there, there's got to be something there as far as i i think dad burned us out on fishing a little bit <laughs> and it's not burned out that we we don't like it or we sure. won't go do it it's been there done that check that box know that i can do it mm. and you know specifically if we're going to go target golden trout in the wind rivers yeah i'll, I'll go we're going right. to go target some big brookies or going to go after halibut sure I, I'd, I'd love to go and i'll enjoy it but if 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 we're going to go on a hike through the woods are you going to say, well, we can chase big mule deer or we're going to chase brook trout or cutthroats? I, you can have the four foot wide stream with the cutthroats in it. I'm going to go look for a big mule deer buck. Sure. And it goes like you go through that progression too, as a fisherman or a hunter, even, you know, we talked about this with Larry Dahlberg is that, I mean, you go from just wanting to catch a fish to at some point you want to catch the biggest fish and then you just want to see other people do it. And so you go through that progression, I think in hunting and fishing where you go through different stages of, I know for me, it depends on the species. I kind of bounce between phases, you know, cause there are certain species that I still just want to catch, but then there's species that I've done really well on so i'm not as interested in and you can go with you know that same progression with any species of big game you know but i've seen it you go from let's take deer for example i just want to get a deer with a rifle then i want to get a big deer with a rifle and then i want to get a deer with a bow then i want to get a big deer with a bow and then it's i want to do traditional and then no i want to kill a big deer post rut in this environment where nobody else has ever done it before and then like david you turn into a sheep hunter because that's the next thing. <laughs> I've, I've done that. Now I want to go do the ship. Yes, yes. It's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's that's a pinnacle of right of the adventure. Just just because of where they live and, and mm-hmm. what they inhabit and how that works. So, yeah. But I I'm again back to I'll still go fishing. Dad mentioned you know one of the guys in the steelheader, and I'll shout him out. It was Don, and he was the, he was the competitive one. But if I asked Don, can we go fishing? Don would take me fishing. He's not taking any of the other old. Old, old fuddy tuddies in the group. He's like, no, you go catch your own fish. But he would take me in the boat, hook me up with the, the Primo rod on the right side of the boat with the, the best color lure just to make sure that this nine-year-old kid could catch a steelhead. And that's what is going to perpetuate the sport. It's the same thing with Faith. I, I took her this fall, gave her the appropriate rod, the appropriate lure, second cast. She has a 28-inch walleye. I mean, that's what you want. You know, when you're you, taking you your kids, that's a big deal. A toy rod with oh, yeah. a, a, just a hook or, or, or something even, on the bottom that wouldn't have been and, as productive. And you could have been fishing with, yep. but you, you've caught the walleye. You've yeah, caught the and, bats. You, know, you should a, have seen her face, man. That was awesome. As a, as a kid growing up, we did a lot of trolling for mm-hmm. kokanee salmon and for, for trout in, in Flaming Gorge after, after that opened up. But there was, um, my mom would, if you were in the boat and, and you hadn't caught a fish in a while, my mom would bait your hook for you. And she would take the worm and step on it on the bottom of the boat with her foot to smash the worm up just a little bit. And that would be the, fi- the the rod that would catch the next fish. I mean, it was just... <laughs> Blow that scent right out of that worm. <laughs> now there's something to that, though, because oh, they can smell it. Oh, it was... I mean, I mean, it's one of those little tricks that you yeah. go, I will, to this day, if I'm worm fishing on something, I sometimes, you know, and I'm not catching anything, it's like, you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'll beat that worm up a little bit before I throw it out there. And eight times out of 10 or something, it it's successful. It, it does something that... 
you know, I'll get a bite. Probably the most maddening thing is I took some young men on a uh, summer camping trip up in the winds and I hiked to the inlet of the lake, not the outlet. We'd been fishing the lake and doing fairly well on six to 12 inch fish. I get up in the inlet in the deepest hole. It was the inlet was maybe a foot deep and five, six feet wide, but it hit this boulder and made a six foot deep little pool about 200 yards upstream from the lake and there is a 20 inch cutthroat laying in the bottom and i had two dozen wet and dry flies and i put every fly in front of now this is a little more popular lake with an easy hiking trail so we could get the kids in and out and i'm sure that fish had seen his fair share he's probably been educated once or twice (laughs) (laughs) but that just motivates david to go take his bow fishing bow or a spear and go get that dang fish out of the that that fish is still that's Uh, two years ago now and it's still haunting me patrick i every time somebody tells me a story like that i see the eyeball of the tiger muskie that when i was in high school i'd been wanting to catch tiger muskie for a long time and i only had a few trips a year that I could actually go. And I had this about 36 inch tiger muskie follow my lure in one day. And he just sat next to the boat looking up at me like, yeah, yeah, I'm not that stupid. And oh, it just drives me nuts. It burns me. I had nightmares about that stupid (laughs) fish. And the next day I actually got him, him to strike and I pulled the lure out of his mouth. Because I was too excited. I could see him in super clear water, like crystal clear. And I'm working this lure and I see him come up behind it and I see his mouth open and I set the hook and into air because I didn't let him bite down and take it. It still bothers me to this day. (laughs) Even though I've caught tiger muskies now, it's like, dang it, why did I do that? We we took a 30-foot diesel pusher boat down to Port Graham out of Homer. And we were halibut fishing, and there's some pinnacles out there. So you've Mm got to, you come from 90 feet of water up to 30 and then back down to 90 in like 20 feet. But the fish stack up on either side of that, depending what the current does, that acts like a wind wall, right? And I remember we were catching halibut mostly, and I I thought I had a halibut on, but it was acting kind of funny. And what had happened is I'd caught about a 30-inch length cod and you know we're just running jig heads bigger six inch jigs with and that's you know just a white body jig well it was in his mouth but he'd got half hitched around the middle so he was coming up sideways i don't know how he got half hitched i'm not sure until he got right about the surface and we're trying to figure out how to you know deal with this fish and i mean i still remember vividly another ling cod swims up and had been chasing him and swallows half of my fish bites down and swims away i told you the fish i had on was 30 inches Mm -hmm. had a mouth like a one gallon paint can the fish that swam up and bit my fish had a mouth like a five gallon bucket it was a 50 plus 60 inch (laughs) lingcott and to this day i'm like get the calf get the other one not this one sounds like we have to go remedy that situation go back and find that fish Yes, that, that one is. <laughs> there's another Get your one. revenge. But, I mean, when you're looking down at a 30-inch fish and all of a sudden a 60-inch fish appears, mm-hmm. it just, I, I still don't quite believe my own eyes. Well, I took Jeremy. We were fishing on the, on the Willamette for squawfish. Oh, and mm-hmm. we're, and we had pulled off on he was fishing while we were doing something and he uh, had a Chinook salmon you know we're talking a you know, 30 pound fish here come up fall and, and he, he jumped out of the water like and, you know jumped back like because ah! <laughs> you know we were we were catching these you know 8 uh, 12 15 inch squawfish you know mm-hmm. and 
that was not what he was expecting to come, come following his worm up there. And it's like, oh, just all of a sudden you're, you're there and there, here's a, here's a big fish and you go, Oh, I, totally out of place. Oh man. Yeah. That, that'll get your attention in a hurry when you see something you don't expect in the water. <laughs> we, we went, took a charter out of Oregon, deep sea fishing. And I remember I took my, my bride, we were dating at the time. I, it was a family trip. I'm sure my sister and brother and dad were there, but instead of, and we we're jigging for rockfish off the bottom, instead of letting the jig straight down and get to the bottom, she cast that thing out there about 20 30 yards she hooked a it was a silver salmon yes yeah she, she hooked a, a 20 awesome. silver salmon so we got a picture of a, a lake <laughs> cod and a sea bass and a salmon on the same trip and so you never quite know where you're going to get some of those species with what yeah and that's part of the fun of just going fishing you just don't know sometimes especially on really diverse bodies of water like boysen you don't know uh, Merritt Reservoir in Nebraska, you just don't know. You could have a 50-inch muskie or you might get an 18-inch white bass. You don't know. <laughs> you could have a 300-pound halibut or you could have a 50-pound a skate coming in sideways. <laughs> yeah, you just don't know. Sometimes it's a shark or you could have an orca pop up next to the boat. That's a little intimidating too. Oh, man. Too. When, we were, yeah, when we were out by Seward there, we took that charter out there and they went by the boat. And I mean, they, you know, when you're right next to them, because I mean, I, I almost could have reached out and touched a dorsal fin, you know, kind of thing. And when they kind of roll and look at you with that eye, that's a weird feeling. Because, I mean, they were as big as our boat. It's like, holy cow. But, I mean, they're a cool-looking animal. But, man, that's freaky. And when you see the dorsal is that high out of the water, it's like, that is a big animal. <laughs> Did I tell you about the humpback that breached the water right next to us while we were jigging out there? Oh, my gosh. You want to talk about a heart attack. I'm standing there, and I'm jigging for rockfish. And I've caught probably three or four. And I was kind of getting bored because... And the biggest pandemonium jigging for rockfish is you have one splash. On the yeah, surface. I mean, they That's don't do two anything. Foot fish. Yeah, they don't do anything. So, you know, I was kind of getting bored with that. And pretty quickly after that, I changed over and came up the water column because there were silvers running and started fishing for those because they were more fun. But anyway, so I'm sitting there jigging and, you know, you've got the mainland there that you can see. And it was pretty rough that day. So, I mean, we were anchored and bouncing up and down. Everybody was feeling a little rough. And I'm, I'm not really paying too much attention. And all of a sudden I see this flash come out of the water. And I mean, within 50 yards of the boat and I look up and this huge humpback whale comes all the way out almost, you know, and then rolls on his back and hits the water. It's just like, boosh. you talk about an adrenaline rush, <laughs> you know, kind of bored catching rockfish. And all of a sudden this whale breaches. It's like, holy cow. But it's a cool, cool sight. And that was some of the coolest things I've ever seen. Well, one of my favorite things about that whole ocean fishing is, is Dungeness crabs. Oh man. It's not much better eating in the ocean. You guys lived in Oregon, so you had access to those puppies. We would go crabbing on the coast, and uh, we would go down to um, Astoria, Lincoln City. Lincoln City, we'd go the next one down. What was it? Walport. Walport. That's where we went crabbing a lot, was Walport. Mm -hmm. And we catched, you know, we, we caught quite a few limits of, of Dungeness crab there, and, and it was, I loved those. I oh loved my those. Gosh. They're about as good to eat as anything, don't you agree? I mean, oh, they're so good. As a kid, Patrick, I couldn't stand and the smell and i would not eat them i <laughs> loved me? to catch them oh i loved it so my brother and dad would them. sit there and just you know devour a table full of them i'm looking i'm like you guys are weird i like catching these things they're neat oh, but man. you give me you know six or seven of those puppies and some butter and i'm in hog heaven oh my gosh you know those square about oh three and a three cage three traps. foot cage traps there. yeah when we went to uh, prince wales island there we went out crabbing twice we we basically 
would would catch a, a salmon and tie it to the bottom of the crab trap and throw it out there. A filleted salmon, a salmon carcass. Yeah, and that and we would pull up crab pot just full of crab, just pull up a whole the whole crab pot full of crabs. We ate crabs that trip till we were sick of eating crabs. <laughs> well, I remember in Walport, we'd have to you got to sort through them and you know, go through the legals yep. and sub legals, right? And Oregon's limit was a little bit smaller than the California limit. Every one of those crabs up there on Prince of Wales Island was significantly bigger than the California limit size. I mean, they're just they're dinner plate size mm. and it's full got to go back and go get some more crabs oh sounds really good you guys are making me hungry <laughs> it's a little early for that <laughs> well the uh the way to clean a crab you take the crab hole alive smack it on the corner of a counter top mm-hmm. up bottom down peel the shell off split it in half rinse it in water pull the lungs off and some people boil them alive and i i am a fan of when you boil them season the water a little bit with some seasoned salt and mm-hmm. I mean, some people go as far as they just bring ocean water home and boil them in the ocean water. Some people put that crab boil or crawdad boil stuff in with them when they cook them too. I've heard that's good. I've I've just done them just regular water. That's but okay. But they're still good. A little flavor is good. A little enough. bit of salt, right? You make a little, it a little bit, bit of salt. Make it a little brackish and then boil them, and they're really good. A little bit of salt helps that out a lot. Yeah, there's not much better eating. I don't know, David. I'm, I'm having second thoughts now. Just kidding. <laughs> I've always liked crab. When I was a little kid, we went up to Alaska and I got to eat fresh crab up there. And man, that was that was awfully good. We had fresh king crab, and I think it was in Homer, if I remember right. Might have been Anchorage. I don't remember. It was one of those two. I was a little kid, but man, I remember thinking, one, these claws are humongous, and two, man, this is really good. Oh, it was so good, and it was affordable up there. You know, you try to get that here, and it's not so affordable. We're a little bit of a ways away from an ocean, Patrick. It's a pretty good flight from the ocean. <laughs> I mean, ocean lake excluded. Yeah, no kidding. But crawdads, you can have a you know pretty good poor man's lobster with those. Mm-hmm. They're, they're pretty good eating. And the other thing is, if you catch burbot, which is basically freshwater ling cod around here, you know, it's just a, a little ling. Some of them get pretty good size. You steam or boil a burbot and pull the meat off and dip it in butter. It tastes a lot like lobster, and it's really, really, really good. Well, now I'm hungry, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Papa Merrill, thanks for coming on and sharing stories of fishing. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and we'll have to get out and do some fishing here before too long. I know everybody's itching a little bit to get out and do something, so. We'll have to get out there. Um, So everybody, again, thanks for listening to the show. Please go to our Facebook page and like that page. And also definitely follow us on Instagram and check out our website. We have um, some new things on there just about every week. So make sure to go and check that out. Check out our old episodes. We have a lot of good stuff out there that you might be interested in. And I want to say a big thank you and shout out to PK Lures for coming on as a sponsor. If you guys haven't heard of them, they have some of the best fishing equipment on the market and i can vouch for it because i've been using it for a long time Um, there is a news article up on our website so click on the news section you can read a little bit about pk lures we'll come back next time with another great show yeah definitely get on there support pk go go Mm -hmm. test out their lures or some patrick can vouch for them oh man if you're ice fishing right now go buy and i kid you not the eighth ounce quarter ounce pk spoon and red dot glow pattern it's it's a dynamite lure i've caught bourbon on them i've caught walleye on them i've caught trout on them just about anything you can imagine crappie and usually they're pretty good sized fish so definitely go get those they were named one of the top ice fishing lures of all time by in fishermen so 
I think they were number two. So to be at number two on that list or is either two or three, that's pretty impressive. And they also have another lure called the flutterfish, which is in the top five ice fishing lures all the time, according to InFisherman. So you can't go wrong. If you're fishing hard water, get one of those two and you're going to do really well. If you want to help support our, our podcast here, you know you can show your show your support, get you a Radcast Outdoors hat. Absolutely. And so again, thanks for listening.